Good morning. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That was a disaster. The Toronto Blue Jays riding high, riding some momentum off of beating all the worst teams in the league, finishing their schedule against sub 400 teams at 18 and four. Ran into a Texas Rangers team that is desperate, that is urgent, that is even at their worst, very capable of putting up some crooked numbers on you. The Toronto Blue Jays did the thing the Toronto Blue Jays have done a lot this year, and we warned you about yesterday, which was face a 91-mile-an-hour junk baller who throws six different pitches, and he'll throw each of those to two or three different locations. And, yeah, the sinker's good and gets a lot of ground balls, but you should not have Dane Dunning cruising into the seventh inning, retiring innings worth of batters in a row as the game goes on. The goal was to get him out of there quickly to get into that terrible bullpen quickly to set up the rest of this series. Instead, Bruce Bochy gets to manage things nice and casually. Chris Stratton, Martin Perez, Ian Kennedy, all with an inning. Uh, Ian Kennedy, of course, gave up the garbage time home run to Kevin Biggio that, that drew the score to 10 to four, but Texas Rangers got to play with, even by the standards of their bullpen, a maybe not no sweat, but low sweat, game the Rangers put up 10 on the Blue Jays 10-4 victory for Texas uh, they chipped away at Chris Bassett early there was some nonsense involved in the early going we'll talk about that mound step off to try to get Mitch Garver which scored a run because Chris Bassett made his third disengagement of a plate appearance it's a new wrinkle to these new rules and Chris Bassett has been open in trying to you know mix up his tempo and things like that to take advantage of the rules Mitch Garver kind of outsmarted him on one it was uh it was funny but it was damaging uh from there chris bassett was probably left in that game a little bit too long and and i know that that is counter to how we on this show have sometimes talked about the leash for pitchers all i'm asking for is some consistency if you say kikuchi is very very good through five innings and has only thrown 80 something pitches and hasn't allowed a ton of hard contact and he gets hooked for the third time through the order why is a guy with a higher pitch count who has not pitched nearly as effectively and, and who's been dealing with runners on base the entire game? Why as why is he allowed to continue? And I know they're different pitchers, they're different opponents and things like that. I would like some consistency in the strategy and the logic here, though. Chris Bassett may be allowed to go a little bit too long. There were some other managerial gripes in this one. There was a send on Kevin Kiermeyer against a defense first outfield who has a 55 grade arm um, in Evan Carter and Kiermeyer. It was a bang, bang play, but given where they were in the order in the game situation that screamed hold to me. And this was not a call it after he's called out thing. I did not like that send as it was happening. Uh, anyway, that happened, but and look, the Chris Bassett thing happened. The did you, you know, use Genesis Cabrera in the right pocket? Did you not get him out quickly enough when he was walking a lot of guys? Um, look, there are some threads to pull out like that. Absolutely. The reality is also, though, that Chris Bassett had a really bad start. Genesis Cabrera had by far his worst game as a Toronto Blue Jay. And the offense outside of George Bringer and Kevin Biggio did very, very little. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. had what might have been the worst offensive game we've seen him have. Uh, he went 0 for 4 with three strikeouts in every one of those plate appearances. You were left scratching your head a little bit. So there is a lot to dissect from that game. There was also Brandon Belt leaving early with back spasms 
Obviously, we know that that is something that's kept him out of the lineup. This was his first game playing in in eight or nine days because of a back issue and then an illness and then a back issue again. You wonder if it flaring up again after that much time down, if an IL stint is in his future. Um, Spencer Horwitz came into that game and had a hit at least. But look, the Jays offense isn't in a, a particularly great spot. And we teed this up yesterday. We said, hey, they've beaten those Royals teams a, a lot. Um, you know, they did the, they won the games, the number of games you're okay with over that stretch, but they also scored five runs a game against Kansas city. They'd struggled at times against Cleveland, Washington, um, even Oakland, Colorado for stretches to put up big numbers. And yeah, now you face a team that has bad pitching, but slightly better pitching and it doesn't look very good. And guess what? Max Scherzer's on the Hill tonight. So I don't know that it gets any easier um the jays have a tall task ahead of them the rest of this series now um that continues down at rogers center tonight hyunjin ryu against max scherzer hopefully more of you come out for this one because last night was weirdly the lowest crowd total of the entire season almost like you guys knew what was gonna happen uh you did not so big workload ahead for the blue jays big workload last night our first guest, Madison Shipman of Sportsnet. Did the Blue Jays Central and radio call double dip that I've done a couple times? Madison, the value of being a kicks person comes into effect here as you can run from the Blue Jays Central set up to the radio booth nice and quickly. How'd that go? Yeah, you know what? I never even thought about that when I was packing my bag for this trip that I was going to have to use the Jays and show off my speed when I'm running from the studio set up to the radio booth. Although I don't doubt myself completely. I do think that I could make that run in some heels. But yes, it is much easier when I have the the sneakers on my feet for sure. The elevators are so busy at that time of the game as well. (laughs) And I don't know, you're you're Madison Chipman. Maybe you could pull a like, uh, hold up my credential. Uh, Excuse me. I, I have to go to the radio booth. I don't. I just blend into the crowd and wait my turn so it's uh the shoes come in handy uh madison so that was uh, a fun note from last night you pull in the double duty bang bang uh tv to radio it was about the only fun thing from that game uh, given where we were and where you know i, I know you were on blue jay central uh, all weekend as well so you've been around this team the last little bit the energy seemed to be riding pretty high on Sunday after that game, even though they hadn't beaten terrific teams. It it did seem like the energy was in a good spot. Um, I I guess at a high level, before we get into specifics, what do you attribute such a dud of a performance coming off of that good weekend? What do you attribute that to? Yeah, you know, it could be a number of things. There were a couple of things in last night's game that I thought were vastly different from what we even saw from them in the Royal Series or even going back to a couple of series before this home stretch. Uh, one, I, I didn't see the consistent quality at bats in a row like we have seen from the offense recently. And now I'm not talking about getting a bunch of hits and stringing them together or seeing the ball fly out of the ballpark left and right. But going up there, executing a game plan. To me, that's the biggest thing when you come into these high-pressure games, when you know that there's a lot on the line, is to get that focus back in line as an offensive player. You have to go up there and execute the game plan and think pitch to pitch. And at times, you saw them kind of get away from that. Several one, two, three innings offensively for the Blue Jays. And when you have those quick one, two, three outs, especially with somebody like Dane Dunning, who was on the hill for the Rangers last night, who works so quickly out there it almost felt like the rangers just had the momentum from the beginning of the game and they just continued to carry it on the other side we saw an uncharacteristic outing from chris bassett Mm. too and we saw some frustration from him 
early in the ball game. I don't know what was going on with the pitch com. The pitch com went flying over into the dugout. He ended up did he ended up getting another one. Uh, but there was just a lot of frustration from him, and we didn't see the command on the sinker like we usually do from him. And because of that, it led to a lot of walks. And when you're walking a lot of batters, you can get kind of a, a lulled out there on, on defense. And then on the flip side, the offense, they know that they've got the pressure on you as a pitcher to try to bring the ball in the strike zone. And then when you do that, they were ready for it. Um, and Evan Carter, uh, for them, obviously has not been – up in the big leagues for very long, but he has made a splash for the Rangers. He threw out Kevin Kiermaier hmm. at the plate from left field. He got his first career home run early in the game. Um, he was fantastic for them. So you had everything going for the Rangers, whether it was them scoring on that box from third base, which was still a wild play. It's been, what, two consecutive games in a row where we've uh, had hmm. some plays where I've had to sit here and try to wrap my mind around what has happened between the ending in the Royal Series and then that box. Uh, or not the box, the uh, third disengagement, I guess I should call it, um, that ended up scoring the first run of the ball game for the Rangers. So everything just seemed to kind of be in, in their direction. But now we, we thought there was a lot of pressure on the Blue Jays yesterday. Mm. Well, there's going to be even more pressure on the Blue Jays today to try to get a win because they really, really need three wins. Uh, from this Rangers series. They do. And for anyone who who is not aware, the three wins are not just to make sure Texas stays behind you in the wild card race. It also gives you the tiebreaker over Texas. Whereas if Texas takes two in this series, they'll own the tiebreaker. So basically every game from now until if the Blue Jays lose one against Texas is a double game, really, in terms of the standings, because you're in if you if you tie, if you win these next three, and you're out if you tie, if you lose one of these next three. So big stakes. Madison, you, you mentioned a couple different things there uh, that I want to dig down on. You mentioned the plate approach from the Toronto Blue Jays, and it wasn't there to the same level. Um, you know, the Texas Rangers were obviously a team that was coming up there with a, a different approach. There are nine walks for Texas to three for Toronto. Yeah, some of that is, you know, Genesis Cabrera also came in and wasn't particularly effective. Bowden Francis walked two batters in the game for the first time since like early June. Um, there was just some, there are some things when it comes to a game like this where it's just, yeah, guys didn't didn't perform that well, uh, and that's part of it. But there were also, like you said, the the approach at the plate, um, you know, the the Chris Bassett weirdness, the pitch calm. I thought the sinker was really really good. The first two innings, it, it was um, it was breaking more than we've ever really seen it break in terms of the Statcast metrics. And then he just lost the feel for it entirely. Um, on the Chris Bassett front, Madison, we've seen John Schneider with everyone but Kevin Gosman basically have a pretty quick hook. If a guy's running up the pitch count, if he started to get in trouble, um, you know, maybe the sixth inning, the third time through isn't there for you. Now I've been, I've kind of, risked losing my analytics card at times being like, no, let the guy go. He's a start. Like you say, Kikuchi is a starter for a reason. He's had a really good season. Let him go through and, until he gets in trouble or same for Chris Bassett. But last night, you know, we see Chris Bassett allowed to go back out there. He'd been struggling a little bit in the innings leading up to that. Um, what did you make of leaving Bassett in there? And, and I guess more to my point, this kind of inconsistency where we don't, at least I don't have a feel game to game for what a pitcher has to do to stay in for a sixth inning like that versus get hooked for a sixth inning like that. Yeah, I, I do see your point on that because, uh, you know, I think back, uh, what was it just a few days ago where you say Kikuchi got pulled out after 88 pitches, I believe. And really it was him. He was going through, he's going to start the third time through the order. And that's what I think led John Schneider to make the change early in that ball game. They did have to deploy 
a lot of different relief pitchers in that ball game, and that's another reason why I was kind of surprised by that because it was right at the beginning of a long homestand. You would think that you wanted to save as many of those bullpen arms for, for as you get deeper into those series, but it ended up Kevin Gosman came in the next day and got everybody back on track. But I was curious just because you started to see the lack of command in that sinker in particular. And Kevin, or excuse me, Chris Bassett, again, we know is not a pitcher that's going to blow everybody away with his velocity. So he very much relies on his spin, relies on his movement, and most first and foremost relies on his location. And if you don't have the location, then everything else starts to fall apart a little bit. The timing of the release becomes a little bit different. Maybe the pitches are breaking just a little bit different, or maybe you're trying a bit too hard to get those pitches into the strike zone, and then you're leaving them over the heart of the plate. And I really do think that as that game progressed, we started to see a combination of those things. Now, I don't know if maybe they were trying to just get him through the third time through the order, maybe try to get him out of there before he had to face Evan Carter for the third time in the ballgame, which they ended up actually doing. Um, getting him out of there in the, that sixth inning. But they, he did give up a couple of base hits. It was the hard contact, too. And you could tell that he was trying to make an adjustment to bring the pitches more into the strike zone, but over-adjusting, and the Rangers were ready for it. So I'm kind of with you. I was surprised that maybe even after that first base hit off of, uh, I believe it was Grossman in that sixth inning, that we didn't see a change then. Um, but it was ended up being a couple of batters later when they just finally decided to make the change uh, on the pitching mound, but of course it didn't matter because they ended up scoring a couple of runs anyway. Yeah, and uh, I just want to be clear for my own take for the audience that it's not about, hey, Kukuchi didn't get to go on and the bullpen struggled, so that's bad, and Bassett did get to go on and he struggled, so that's bad. I just want the consistency. I would like to be able to guess if a guy is coming out or not. Uh, Madison, you, you had also mentioned, you know, there was some weirdness with this Bassett start too. There was a wild pitch, which is kind of uncharacteristic of him. There were the pitch comm issues, and then there was a of course, the Mitch Garver step off and you had mentioned it. So for anyone who missed it or, or wasn't quite clear on that uh, runner on third base, full count. So and a lefty hitter. So the infield was shifted really heavily over cabin Biggio as the third baseman was playing basically where a shortstop would play and even a little bit to the second base side of that. Um, Chris Bassett had taken two disengagements already, so he's not allowed a third one unless he gets the runner out. Mitch Garver just kind of walks three quarters or two thirds of the way to the plate um, and, and baits Chris Bassett into coming off. Now there are a couple things that could have happened there. Chris Bassett could have caught him Garver. Chris Bassett said after the game that what he was thinking in the moment, and this is a snap decision is if he runs toward third base, maybe Garver goes home instead of trying to beat Bassett mm. the third Bassett can throw to home and get him there. There's a scenario where Kevin Biggio peels off the shift, seeing this happen and comes back to third base. But given how little he's played at that position this year, even though he's been very, very good at it, um, you know, that that's maybe a little bit much to ask. I guess Madison, as that was happening in real time, you're in the radio booth with Ben Wagner. Um, how, I, I guess just what was going through your head in that we, we don't really need to analyze it. Cause I don't know it'll happen ever again, but as you saw that unfolding, what was your thought process trying to figure out the, the Garver Bassett one-on-one there? Well, I kept wondering how close Garver was going to get to that right-handed batter's box, because by the time that that whole situation happened, he was practically in that batter's box. And I kept thinking, you know, what would I have tried to do defensively to maybe try to deter that uh, and I was, kept looking over at Kevin Biggio to see if he was going to make the creep and take a couple of steps over, not saying that he needed to completely get away from 
the shift that the infield was in and plant himself firmly on third base, but maybe even just take a couple of steps over to where Mitch Garver would have been a little bit closer to third base. Um, But it seemed like that was an intentional game plan for the Rangers too, because they were very active, uh, whether it was with their leads, Um, or, of course, Mitch Garver ending up halfway down uh, to home plate uh, over at third base. It seemed like they were very active in trying to almost distract Chris Bassett, it almost seemed at times, with what they were doing on the base paths, and it it ended up working in that situation. And with Kevin Biggio nowhere close to third base to cover, those two prior disengagements to me uh, were a little bit surprising as well because those were just, you know, he was looking over there just saying, hey, I see you, I see that you're this far off, but, Obviously, there's nothing we can do about it because Kevin Biggio is not anywhere close to third base. So I kept looking over to third base to see if they were going to start to see him creep over a little bit. And I can see what Chris Bassett is saying about if you were to take off running at him, and then maybe he would take off towards home plate. But the angle in which he went after him initially, it just led the runner to go back towards third base. So and once you take off, take a step off of the mound, I mean, you just have to either get that out or the runner ends up scoring, which has ended up what – uh, happened for the Rangers, but yeah, very uh, confusing play. I don't know if we'll see another one of those, but hey, we saw uh, we've seen a bunch of madness in the Rogers Center over the past couple of days. So who knows what we're in store for the next few days of this series? Yeah, it's uh, it's a lot. I still don't know that anything we'll ever see will top what happened with Cole Reagans the other day, uh, <laughs> face planting and then continuing to to slip. But who knows? Weird things happen uh, in baseball, especially this time of year. So um, we had mentioned that you know the Rangers had more patient game plan against Bassett and the Blue Jays bullpen and the Jays didn't really have that to the same level against Dane Dunning and you know at the risk of of picking on him because he's had a season with a lot of lows and frustration points you know I look at Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s game last night and it seems pretty indicative he gets up 2-0 in that first inning and then swings at three straight pitches that you know, two of them were probably strikes, but all the pitches were borderline. Next plate appearance, he comes up three straight swings, including a pitch that was not particularly close to the zone. Next at back gets up two one, but ends up striking out on three swinging strikes again. And then, you know, in his final plate appearance against, I think it was Martin Perez in at that point. So a lefty, uh, a guy you think maybe is it's a good opportunity against, um, you know, grounds out softly on a pitch that was well inside the plate. So, um, you know, some of those, I guess, defensive swings on on stuff borderline, but very few of those defensive swings coming with two strikes Um, all told. I think he swung at 13 pitches over his four plate appearances. And obviously the only one he put in play was the soft ground out. Uh, What did you see from Vladimir Guerrero jr. at, At the plate? And I guess, where are you at kind of big picture with this inconsistency in approach we've seen from Vlad? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because coming into yesterday's ball game, I really thought that Vladdy's swing decisions recently looked really good up at the plate. I thought he's looked very comfortable in the box. He's been very confident in his takes. And you can even tell by, by his reactions after some takes in the box, whether he's shuffling his feet around or just the energy that he brings into the box when he's starting to feel good. What was curious about the pitches that he was swinging at yesterday, he ended up striking out all three times on that slider. And he wasn't the only righty in the lineup yesterday that looked a bit hesitant uh, on that slider. I remember a couple of hacks from George Springer even on that same exact pitch. So I don't know what it was with that pitch coming out of Dunning's hand. Maybe it had 
a little bit of extra movement on it or maybe coming out of the hand it looked like a different pitch but that seemed to be the pitch that the couple of the righties in the lineup had the hardest time making adjustments to and you got to give credit to Dunning as soon as he noticed that they weren't exactly comfortable with that slider he just kept going back to it and back to it and back to it um, so that was what I saw from those swings now Again, you're going to have days like that where you're facing a pitcher where you just cannot pick up the ball out of the hand. It's just I wish there was more of a scientific reason as to why that happens. But I can think of a handful of times even in my career where the pitcher probably could have put the ball on a tee for me and I still would have managed to find a way to swing and miss it. So (laughs) I'm hoping that yesterday was just the case, uh, something like that, where they weren't able to quite uh, pick it up out of the hand on that slider. Um, but and I hope he does stick with the aggressiveness too, along with of course the the plate discipline that we've seen as of late. Because you want him to be aggressive, you want him to have that power. I love that aggressive swing that he had on a three zero count in that Royal Series account that he could have easily just gone up there and said, you know what, the way that I've been swinging the bat recently, I'm going to take, make the pitcher throw me another pitch. But he went up there and he was aggressive on a 3-0 count. It ended up paying off for him when he hit it out um, into that left center gap. So those are the types of swings that I want to see him continue to take up at the plate because at the end of the day, if you want to try to make a run in the postseason, you need to have somebody like Vladdy in the middle of your order. Even if it's not hitting home runs, producing runs. You need to get him to figure out a way to drive in runs when they're on base. And really, before last night, the Blue Jays have done a much better job of being productive with runners in scoring position. Um, It was actually an area that the Rangers have struggled with Mm -hmm. quite a bit as of late. It seemed like in game one yesterday, those things flipped for each of those teams. But I do believe that you need to get Vladdy trying to feel more confident up at the plate, more comfortable in his takes. Um, in order for the Blue Jays to make a run. And and leading up until yesterday's game, we saw strides that were working in that direction. So hopefully yesterday was maybe just a bit of a fluke for him and he can get back on track tonight. You sure hope so. And sorry, I misspoke. I had said 13 swings. There were 13 strikes, 10 swings, only one ball in play, and obviously uh, zero hits. So not not a banner day for Vlad at the plate, not a banner day for the Blue Jays in general. So Madison, the energy around this team on Sunday was pretty good. There was the Kevin Kiermaier promo, you know, the George Springer charity event. There was a lot of good energy. A game like last night can obviously be deflating. How does that room make sure that last night is a blip? Like, uh, like you lost the last game of a series against Oakland, didn't come away with the sweep. How does that room make sure that doesn't roll into the rest of this series now? You've got to find a way as a clubhouse to create your own energy within the team, right? And you're going to have a bunch of different guys with a bunch of different personalities. You're going to have a lot of loud personalities. Maybe some guys that are a bit more quiet, but you've got to come together as a team and try to figure out a way to bring the energy right from the start of the game. And there are little things that I've always felt like can bring energy to a team, even within the ball game. And sometimes it's maybe being aggressive on the base pads or, or stealing a base here and there, or, you know, making, um, Uh, the defense uh, try to rush and you have them make an error, something like that. I I do think that there are little things that can be done within the game itself to just get that energy back over onto your side. And of course the Blue Jays have the talent to be able to do that. Wouldn't be surprised if maybe they try to uh, get a little bit more uh, small ball in there. We saw Whit Merrifield execute a hit and run um, against the Royals, little things like that, where you get people in motion, you put the pressure on the opponent. Those are the types of things that you can get the momentum back on your side, get the energy back on your side. 
and they're going to need to come together, I believe, before the game even starts to say, hey, how can we bring this energy right from the very first pitch of the ball game? Because I do think that the momentum and the energy does make a difference in, in a big series like this. And it seemed like really from the start of the, yesterday's ball game, it seemed to be in the hands. Uh, of the Rangers. So it's going to be on them knowing their personalities, knowing what uh, fires them up the most, I would say, uh, to try to get things back on track. But I, I know that Blue Jays fans everywhere are hoping to see a ton of that energy, that energy that we saw from Kevin Kiermaier ripping the uh, mic away from Harden's dwelling in the post game uh, to start off tonight's ball game. So, uh, Madison, before I let you go here, one thing you and I have talked about before, and, and you said, yeah, I, I, you can understand that from your time as a hitter as well, is, you know, sometimes this Blue Jays team seems like they struggle with the Dane Dunning type where you've got to keep six different pitches and a couple different locations in mind, whereas, you know, a, a guy who's more stuff-heavy and the stuff is better, but you can simplify what you're looking for at the plate. Maybe doesn't, maybe suits the Blue Jays a little bit better. And you could understand that from your time as a player. Uh, what about a guy like Max Scherzer who does both? Still throws like 94, 95, and then throws five different pitches. I guess only four different pitches to righties and four different ones to lefties. But yeah, a guy who kind of has a little bit of both. What is the approach for uh, the 2023 version of Max Scherzer in your eyes? Yeah, when you're facing a pitcher like Scherzer, who, like you said, does have a little bit of both, I always tried to go with what my strengths were. So if he was going to throw a bunch of different pitches, whether it was with velocity or a ton of movement, I was going to fall back on pitches that I wanted to go after. Now, speaking for myself, I was much more of a fastball type of hitter in certain situations, so I would be going up there looking for more of the fastball. Um, and when you look at his last start uh, against the Houston Astros, it was when him and Justin Verlander went head-to-head. Not a good start for him. He ended up giving up three home runs, including a grand slam. And a lot of that was because he was all over the strike zone, did not have the command of his pitches that he usually has. Um, and a lot of those walks ended up uh, resulting in um, some home runs for the Astros. So you know for him, he's going to try to come back out here in tonight's start and be a different pitcher than he was against the Astros. He's going to want to attack the strike zone. So I think you attack his aggressiveness with aggressiveness up at the plate, decide what sort of spin or speed or location that you want to go after before you step into the box. And when you see it, you absolutely go all out and you go after that pitch. Um, so that would be the way that I would approach somebody like Max Scherzer. Of course, it's much easier for me to uh, talk about and execute a game plan when I'm sitting here talking on the phone with you than it is up in the box. But it should be a good uh, a good battle between the Toronto Blue Jays tonight and Max Scherzer. Yeah, I'll tell you what, though. Max Scherzer couldn't do Blue Jays Central and the Jays radio broadcast all on the same <laughs> night, back-to-back five <laughs> minutes apart. So, uh, yeah, he might have a, a fastball-slider combo that's a little difficult. He can't touch your combo. Uh, Madison Shipman, thanks so much for making the <laughs> time out awesome thank you so much for having me madison shipman of sportsnet blue jay central regular on the call for this entire series with ben wagner on the sportsnet radio network before we take a break here reset on where things stand after yesterday so the jays lose to texas their playoff odds if you care to look at it day-to-day drop from uh, 79.2 to 74.4 percent. that's not a huge deal but the rest of these games are big swing games The Blue Jays need to win the next three if they're going to have the tiebreaker over Texas. So even if you split 2-2, yeah, you've still got room on them in the standings because he came into this series ahead, but you take a modicum of controlling your own fate away from it because I don't think you can assume that you're going to go undefeated the rest of the way. Um, Texas would then have the tiebreaker over you, so all they have to do is pull tide, not jump you elsewhere. 
Tampa Bay beat Minnesota. They're only three games back of Baltimore now. So uh, that dread of the wild card two spot being at Tampa Bay, who knows? Maybe it's at Camden. No better if you're a Blue Jays fan, but maybe some of these other teams uh, aren't as worried about that if the Rays could catch the Jays here. Jays still in the second wild card spot, half a game up on Texas, a game up on Seattle uh, because Seattle lost to the Angels in extras last night. Houston also lost to Oakland. So um, if we kind of look at this as three AL West teams and the Blue Jays, Fighting for those three spots, um, the Blue Jays, you know, come out neutral-ish. Obviously, Texas gains a game, but no game, no ground gained by Seattle or Houston in that jockeying. Uh, Eric Swanson was activated yesterday, as we told you on the show. Jay Jackson, the corresponding move. Uh, we saw Danny Jansen in his big soft cast. Uh, Matt Chapman threw to bases, took ground balls, hit in the cage a little bit. Uh, it's a matter of pain tolerance from here. He'll still have to progress up to hitting off the high velo machine. And yeah, there was some Alec Manoa stuff that came out yesterday. Uh, I will push back a little bit because Ben Nicholson Smith told us all that stuff on the show last week. Uh, this is something we talked about. We kind of went into all of the details that ended up making it into Ben's piece and obviously a, a great interview with Ben Wagner on Blair and Barker on the Sportsnet Radio Network yesterday that went into it a little bit more. Uh, but yeah, we, we've been talking about this. This has been a story that's brewing. Ben Nicholson Smith's on with us at 11 o'clock. We'll go into a little bit more detail about his Manoa reporting, revisit some of what we talked about last week. Uh, we also have Levi Weaver, who is at The Athletic and formerly covered the Rangers, coming on a little bit. Well, after we take a break here, though, we'll talk to Jay Jaffe, senior writer at Fangrass. We'll look at these AL wildcard teams and the mess here. We'll also take a little bit of a look ahead at these Cy Young races. Uh, Jay had a great piece about Zach Gallen over the weekend, and we're going to give away some tickets to tomorrow's Jays Rangers game in this next segment. All that's next as Jays Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Staying alive out of spite, Texas Rangers uh, in this wild card race. They're actually technically back in a spot here. The Mariners fall back out of it. Texas, Seattle, Houston, they jockey for the AL West title and a wild card spot or two. The Jays, I don't know. I feel like they should just shift them into the AL West at this point and make it all a lot cleaner. Top three teams get in. Uh, but the Jays adding uh, an extra wrinkle there. They could do themselves a lot of favors by wrapping up this series from here. One name who is going to be uh, trying to make sure they don't do that. Had two hits yesterday and uh, including a double. He has an OPS of 1.049 on the season is Corey Seager. Uh, he is now back on eligibility for all of the rate stat leaderboards. And he's probably right there in the AL MVP race. If Shohei Otani did not exist, someone who wrote about, just how good Corey Seager's been is Jay Jaffe, senior writer at Fangraphs. He joins us now. Jay, good morning. Hey, good morning. Uh, okay, so Corey Seager, you know, you wrote you wrote this terrific piece the other day. The Rangers have been a disaster, but you cannot point to Corey Seager as a reason why, even with two stints 
down injured that that kind of kept him from being on, you know, the batting average and the OPS leaderboard and stuff like that. When he has been available, he has been tremendous. Uh, if you had a, a hypothetical American League MVP ballot right now, I think we all think Shohei's number one. Is Seager two? Is he three? Is, is he right there in the mix for you despite the missed time? Yeah, you know, I think he'd be either two or three. I'd take a I'd take a closer look at him and uh, Julio Rodriguez, um, who's actually uh, inched past him uh, in our uh, version of wins above replacement. But uh, the two of them, I think, are are both having you know what I would call MVP caliber seasons. They're not going to win because Shohei Otani is just out of this world, even uh, as he's dealing with injuries uh, lately. Um, you know, he's put together a type of season that we've never seen before, and, and, and it's just fantastic. But, yeah, Seager has been remarkable, particularly considering that he missed uh, more than a month uh, due to a hamstring issue and then um, uh, missed uh, 10 days due to a sprained right thumb. Um, you know, he's, he's hitting the ball harder than ever. He is uh, uh, slugging, you know, just incredibly well. Um, it's it's been really impressive, and it's it's been kind of alarming that that all this is happening at a time when uh, the Rangers are just collapsing around him. Uh, I believe they lost 16 of 20 lately, had before this before this recent uh, three game win streak. So what is it that makes Corey Seager so special to play? Obviously the numbers are the numbers, but a, a part of your piece that was fascinating to me is he does a really good job pulling the ball in the air. And we know that that's a pretty good thing to do if you want to hit for power, but he has enough plate coverage. He has a good enough approach that he's also able to rope balls the other way and to center field. Um, how unique is that skill of, well, that unique's a binary thing, so uh, it's not on a, on a scale, but how rare is it, I guess, for someone to be able to pull the ball in the air with authority like that, but also still have the part of the profile where, yeah, he can take it the other way. He can cover pitches on, on all three thirds of the plate and, and use the entire field like that. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what makes an elite hitter. And I think, you know, Corey Seager has shown, uh, you know, he's got a career uh, 135 WRC plus, 35% above average. Uh, you know, that is an elite hitter. Um, you know, the, the knock on Seager actually has been uh, his pull tendency. Um, you know, this is a guy who has faced uh, last year, faced the shift 93% of the time. And, um, you know, he's, he, so he was so predictable at pulling the ball that, uh, uh, you know, the defenses were really aligned against him, and, and he lost a, a lot of hits that way. I kind of run through the numbers in, in my article. It doesn't explain everything about uh, why last year was a down season and this year uh, has been uh, so much better. But, you know, the other thing about Seager is he is very good at making contact in general, just great bat-to-ball skills. I mean, he's only got a 16.9% a, a strikeout rate this year, um, that's about it's a little below his his career mark. Usually in the fifteen sixteen range, and uh, um, you know, so he's just he can beat you in a lot of different ways. Is I think what it comes down to, and that's what makes a superstar, and that's why he gets the big bucks. So you look at this American League wildcard race, and there is obviously Julio Rodriguez helping drive the success of the Seattle Mariners and especially their second-half turnaround. There is Corey Seager and Marcus Semien, it should be said, who are kind of driving the Texas Rangers, who still have one of the best offenses in baseball and could still sneak in here despite one of the all-time bad months from a playoff 
team's bullpen. Uh, and then you look at, you know, even Houston has, you know, Kyle Tucker and Alex Bregman having very good seasons, even if they maybe don't pop up on MVP ballots. And then you look over to the Toronto Blue Jays, Jay, and I wonder how much from afar um, you think we can attribute the Jays' lack of, I mean, they're in a wild card spot right now. It's not like they've been bad, but they haven't had one of those sustained runs like Seattle just had or like Texas had earlier in the year. Um, and they don't have, you know, Bo Bichette would be their guy up there on an MVP ballot. He missed two chunks of time now. Uh, I, You know, when you lay out Corey Seager having a down year last year and all the things that that have gone in the better direction this year or Julio Rodriguez's midseason turnaround, it's hard not to look at Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who has, by the way, a 113 WRC plus this year, so even worse than Corey Seager's down 2022 year. Um, what do you make of the season that Vlad's had, especially, you know, kind of taking the, the look at the five-season hole we have with Vlad here? Yeah, it's look, Vlad's a puzzle unto himself. And I looked at him right around the All-Star break after he won the home run derby. And, and you know, he just was not getting uh, the results that you'd expect from, you know, considering how often he was hitting the ball in the air. And some of that, I think, has to do with the, uh, uh, the, the, the change in configuration there at the Rogers Center. But, you know, there's nobody on the Blue Jays besides uh, maybe Bichette that I would point to as having a really good season with the bat. You've got five guys five or six guys, uh, you know, regulars with a, with a WRC plus uh, above 100, but there's nobody who's, uh, um, you know, at 130 or 140, uh, with the exception of Brandon Belt, who's, you know, who's a platoon player, basically. So, um, you know, it's a, it, it, the, the, uh, the offense just has just not been their strength. Uh, this year, I mean, this is a team I think that's largely founded on on, on its rotation, and it, the rotation has been very good, with the obvious exception of of Alex Manoa and and what's happened there. So, um, it's a it's not the Blue Jays. I don't know if it's the Blue Jays team we expected. I think we thought we we thought we'd see uh, much more offense from them, but but Glass and Enigma, and uh, uh, I don't know. You know, the further we get from that big season a couple of years ago. Uh, the, the more I wonder if this really is his norm here, um, you know, and, and, and that he's just not going to be the superstar level bat that, that we thought. Which is a, a tough thing to to deal with and plan around if you're the Toronto Blue Jays. Obviously, it's not everything, but you mentioned Manoa there as well. And we can look at, you know, hey, your, your top young pitcher and your top young hitter both had dramatic drop-offs this year. That's going to cost you a few wins in the end, and it's not really something you can plan for. Uh, Jay, I want to swing it over to the National League wild card picture because another guy who has kind of turned his season around and it actually started here in Toronto a couple weeks ago. Uh, how much more dangerous do the Phillies feel right now that Bryce Harper and I, and I know you wrote about Bryce Harper's kind of power surge here at Fangraphs this week. How much more dangerous do the Phillies feel now that Bryce Harper is starting to look like Bryce Harper again? Oh, definitely. I mean, you, you, you combine, you know, Harper looking like he's emerged from, uh, the effects of his off-season Tommy John surgery, hitting the ball with much more authority lately, um, with uh, the uh, the Trey Turner renaissance and and uh, his latest power surge, and and uh, you know he was really struggling there for uh, the first half of the season and even more. And suddenly, yeah, the Phillies are are a lot more dangerous. Kyle Schwarber's hitting better. Um, it, a lot is coming together for them. I mean, I, you know, I still have. Uh, uh, some questions about their pitching, particularly, you know, they just haven't gotten as much out of Aaron Nola besides innings as, as we expected. But um, yeah, this is a, uh, 
this is a dangerous team, and and uh, you know as they showed last year, um, they may not be um, an elite team wire to wire, but they do seem to be uh, uh, particularly good down the stretch. So one team that is getting, well, I guess the Phillies are getting good pitching out of uh, Zach Wheeler for the most part, even if it's not peak Zach Wheeler, he's been pretty solid. But you look at that wild card race in the NL where, I mean, there are still six teams in it for three spots there. And you look at Arizona and I know Zach, Zach Allen kind of stuck it to you a little bit last week. You, you write this great piece setting up the <laughs> NL Cy Young race and you're like, yeah, Zach Allen's like on the, on the periphery of it, but he's cooled off a little bit later lately and then he throws like a three hitter. Um, you know, when you look at the wild card race and it, how it reflects kind of uh, this NL Cy Young race where, yeah, Wheeler, Zach Allen, Justin Steele, Logan Webb, all those guys are kind of in and around both of those races. Yeah. Um, how do you, do you have a lean on how that might shake out? Do you have a lean on, you know, who you'd like to see get into those wild card spots for entertainment purposes? Oh, I don't know. Um, you know, it, it, it's interesting. Yeah, there's there's no clear-cut leader in the, in the Cy Young race. I think Gallon spent a lot of the summer as the presumptive leader. I mean, this is a guy who started the, the, the All-Star game for the NL, and uh, uh, MLB.com writers uh, polled uh, have had him in the lead uh, for most of the season, uh, you know, when they, when, they, when they picked. But lately he's been in kind of a second-half slump, and, and, you know, it was it's sort of my mistake to, to really overlook mm-hmm. him there. But it's interesting. I mean, these guys, you know, there's the most entertaining pitcher for my money uh, in that race is Spencer Strider because, boy, he misses bats and he throws hard and, and uh, just is a really entertaining pitcher. Um, but... Uh, you know, and, and and none of the other guys that you that you mentioned there, Wheeler, Steele, Webb, Gallon. I mean, they're all very good pitchers. I don't want to take anything away from from them, but they don't quite have that same wow factor that Strider does. They don't throw as hard. Uh, you know, they're maybe a little bit more reliant on command. Not that Strider doesn't have great command, but uh, um, you know, command is the bigger deal for these guys, and 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 Wheeler and Webb particularly have been have been workhorses there. Um, so I don't know. I mean, look, these are entertaining teams. I mean, it's it's certainly uh, been very interesting to watch the Diamondbacks turn it around from being you know kind of a, a division doormat, and the Cubs are coming back from from some lean years. Um, you know, I think we've seen we've seen some separation now. The Giants, Marlins, and Reds are all one and a half or two games behind. Uh, but I think the Cy Young uh, race is going to come down to who makes the best closing statements here. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, if Gallon throws another shutout, that's going to leave a big impression on voters. If it's, uh, um, you know, Justin Steele helping the Cubs hold on to a spot, that that's going to make an impression too. Um, you know, I think anybody who gets hot is capable of winning that award right now. And I think that's fairly similar in the American League where, yeah, Garrett Cole has, a, you know, the ERA lead and the innings lead, but Sonny Gray is not far off on either of those things. I know you invented, uh, what, what was it, J-E-R-A to, to blend ERA, oh, X-E-R-A, and F-I-P uh, together to try to get a, a more balanced look. Um, if we go by Fangraph's wins above replacement, which is F-I-P-based, uh, Kevin Gosman is at the top of, of that list. Do you see the AL Cy Young race being as close as the NL, or, or is is this a little more down to Cole and Gray in your eyes? How do you see that one shaping up? You know, I, I think Kevin Gosman is, is definitely in it here. I think, you know, it, we've because I live in, in New York here, 
uh, and you know have seen the the uh, the MLP.com polls that have put Cole in a pretty commanding position. You know, in terms of the presumptive uh, lead, um, I you know I think maybe it's it's my you know my my impression has been a little distorted. But when I look at the numbers, I mean I I think I think Gosman and 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 Gray are there. I, Gray with just a seven and seven one loss record. Look, I, he's had a great season, but that's not going to get you Cy Young votes. And and you know a good percentage of. Uh, the Cy Young still, you know, there's still a fallback when it comes to one-loss records. I mean, you know, we we can predict it fairly well uh, using a model that uh, Tom Tango uh, invented a few years ago. I don't I, I don't see Gray as being um, the the likely guy to win there. I think it is going to come down to to Gosman and and uh, and Cole, and I'd, I'd probably give the edge to Cole there just because the ERA. Uh, and and uh, you know is is high and because there I think there's an impression that you know he got stiffed a little bit a couple times uh, losing out to Justin Verlander in 2019 when he had probably his best season uh, you know and in 21 when he when he lost to, to Robbie Ray um, you know that he might be uh, quote unquote due uh, but the numbers I think you know Cole's strikeout rate has fallen a bit Gosman's strikeout rate is up. Um, you know he's got the better peripherals of the of the two of them. It's it, it's it's interesting because, you know, uh, the philosophies used depend on the voters in question. Hmm. Yeah, and and everyone might have a, a different take on it. Um, Jay, we're going to see Hyunjin Ryu against Max Scherzer tonight here in Toronto. Pretty pretty fun one. Got to look at Max Scherzer earlier in the year in New York. Hyunjin Ryu, uh, always a fascinating pitcher. But I know you've written a bunch lately uh, based on the research of John Rogelli uh, about some of the UCL injuries we're seeing around baseball. And they're not you know, up significantly, but they're not down and that sucks. And we're seeing, you know, some, some guys now maybe a little more able than they have been in the past to come back from a second Tommy John uh, surgery, like Hyunjin Ryu is here at at age 36. Um, Are you surprised at all to see Ryu come back, you know, in 13 months and change from a second one at his age and have success here for the Blue Jays? I'm a little surprised that it, that it only took that long, but I, I, you know, I, I got the sense, you know, I don't know. I think he's he's at a point in his career where, you know, he's he's done what he can, and if if it doesn't hold out, it doesn't hold out. But he's not a high velocity guy, um, you know. Whereas I was openly critical of the Dodgers trying to rush Walker Bueller back at 13 months. You know, he's a guy throwing 98, and and I just don't think that. Uh, um, the uh, uh, the stress of, uh, of of so much velocity is going to hold out. Uh, you know, it's, it's going to do do well for that uh, uh, that reconstructed UCL in the long run. You know, Ryu is a guy who who lives below 90 miles an hour with his fastball and and uh, uh, is more reliant on finesse. I, you know, I think that uh, um, I, you know I'm pleasantly surprised that he's had the success he has so far. I mean, the peripherals are a little bit uh, uh, behind the. Uh, uh, that 265 ERA, but uh, um, you know I'm always going to root for that for for Hyunjin Ryu. I love watching him pitch, and and he's a funny guy to boot. So. Um, you know, I hope I hope that his elbow holds together for sure. Me too, and I hope that this success, yeah, uh, underlying metrics aside, the 265 ERA would come really in handy tonight against this Rangers team, Corey Seager and Max Serger. Uh, Jay Jaffe, thanks so much for taking the time out this morning, man. I really appreciate it. All right, sure thing. Jay Jaffe, senior writer at Fangraphs. It is Hyunjin Ryu against Max Scherzer tonight. Tomorrow, you say Kikuchi 
against Jordan Montgomery, we would like to send you. These are pretty big games. The Jays, you know, I don't know. Did they play poorly yesterday because it was the smallest attendance of the year? Probably not related, but it doesn't hurt to have a packed Rogers Center. Uh, so we would like to send a couple of you there with a prize pack tickets to Wednesday's game, as well as some team swag. Uh, as we always do, I'm going to say a code word. You text it into 590, 590. And uh, I'm feeling a little bad about the Bills loss last night. I'm not a Bills fan, but I know that Ernie Clement is. So let's pick him up. Let's have today's code word be Clement. C-L-E-M-E-N-T, because some of you <laughs> continue to need help with the spelling in the text line. Uh, so text Clement to 590-590. Uh, if you missed earlier in the week, apologies about that. Hope you get it today. Uh, but lots of tickets still available for these games. So even if you don't win with us, take a look and uh, and get down to the ballpark. Today's the last day. We're giving away uh, a pair. So very much hope that you're the one who wins it by texting Clement to 590 590- 590. It'll be Montgomery Kikuchi tomorrow. Uh, Ryu and Scherzer tonight, which is uh, a lot of fun. And Hyunjin Ryu, you know, we talked a little bit earlier and I, I got some some texts uh, or, or tweets um, about, you know, the hook that guys have had or, or not had. And again, I just want to reiterate that it's not, you know, you, you got to call these things in the air. Obviously, you, you don't want to, you know, manage only by the results, but there's a level of consistency that hasn't been there necessarily. And when, you know, a Kikuchi gets pulled or a Bassett gets pulled or this start, a guy's hook, what is a guy's hook and that start, what's a guy's hook. And look, I, I know that the team has more information on that stuff than we do, but it's something I'm looking at. I can see the break and the velocity and the hard hit rates and things like that. And, you know, maybe we can't quite tell how much did they hit the spot they were supposed to hit and things like that. Um, but there's some consistency missing there is what I would say with that. Um, whatever, whichever end of, of the quick hook or long hook you prefer, uh, the consistency is probably the more important part there. That does not necessarily apply to Hyunjin Ryu. He's gone exactly five innings in all but one of his appearances so far this year. He has been pitch efficient. I don't think this is as much about anything other than making sure Hyunjin Ryu uh, stays healthy, stays feeling good, can roll it over start to start. I think whether he is uh, shaky or whether he is very, very good, you're probably only seeing him for five innings tonight. That's how it goes. We're going to take a break. Then we're going to talk about someone you're not going to see the rest of this year. Ben Nicholson Smith gave us the inside scoop on the Alec Manoa stuff a little bit last week. He wrote a great piece at sportsite.ca about it yesterday. We'll touch on that and go a little further. It does not sound like Alec Manoa is going to throw a competitive pitch again this year at any level. Ben Nicholson Smith joins us next as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsite Radio Network and Sportsite 360. Your daily dose of everything NFL. It's the Fan Checkdown with Matt Marchese and Donovan Bennett. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Ben Nicholson-Smith of Sportsnet of Sportsnet.ca joins us now. Apparently, the ratings for my show were not great last week. Everyone just missed, Ben, that everything you put in your article yesterday, you we talked about on the show, you, you brought to the table here, you brought the heat on Jay's Talk Plus with all these Alec Manoa details, uh, but I guess let's do it again. Uh, man, what? What what the heck, man? This is uh your your piece was I guess first of all, good morning. How are you doing? 
Uh, hey, Blake. Good. Yeah. Doing well. Good to be talking with you. How's it going? I'm good. I'm fired up. Uh, so look, we're going to talk about last night's game. It is obviously the more relevant and acute story right now. And the Blue Jays are in a playoff race that Alec Manoa is separate from. And obviously Alec Manoa being separate from this playoff race is kind of the story of the Blue Jay season. Um, but there was a scenario where a month ago when he got optioned to triple A initially, we thought, well, hey, if the Jays need him, if someone gets hurt, if there's a double header day, Alec Manoa would be really good triple A depth. I, I know we talked about it a little bit on the show last week, but you had this piece go up yesterday. What has the last, how has the last month unfolded such that not only is Manoa not depth if they needed him now, but we're not going to see him throw a pitch at any competitive level in 2023 anymore. Yeah, it would be a real, real shock if he's able to get off a mound. Pretty much the people I'm talking to don't expect that to happen. So his season effectively is done. And uh, yeah, that's obviously not ideal by any stretch. And the Blue Jays, it's funny how these things work sometimes because, as you know, Blake, I mean, sometimes you'll hear stuff and you have a pretty good sense of it a few weeks before you can you know, officially publish something or share something publicly. And so... You know, behind the scenes, from what I've been able to gather, this has been the case for a while now, that it was pretty unlikely that Manoa was going to be able to um, pitch again this year and that that was going to happen. And so, you know, yesterday I was able to get to the point that in talking to people who are pretty close to the situation, have a good read on it, that, you know, that's it's essentially that that ship has sort of sailed. He's not going to pitch again this year, barring a big reversal. Um, but yeah, there are all kinds of layers to this and we can get into them, but it, you know, it's really essentially he wanted to go through some medical testing. Um, you know, the team was supportive in, um, in, in those endeavors to make sure that he was getting tested medically. He had a couple follow-ups last week. Um, there is nothing structural. There is nothing that will require surgery as far as I understand it. Um, but Manoa, hasn't felt as though he's at a point that he can compete physically and felt that rest and recuperation would be the best path. I mean, that's what the actions tell us, right? He hasn't been pitching. He's had the opportunity to. Um, so there are some physical concerns. And and look, the the consequences of this have a, have a chance to reach pretty far. Um, so we'll see where those go. And uh, in the meantime, the Blue Jays do not have their opening day starter as they proceed here in this pennant race. So obviously we have to be aware uh, of what Manoa is reporting about his body physically, right? Like we, we can't, you know, throw that aside. We can't be reckless uh, about a player's health, whether it's physical or mental. However, the Blue Jays have operated this last month plus as if they don't think there's, maybe they don't not think there's an injury, but they haven't placed him on the IL. And as you and I discussed last week, if he was hurt, he would probably, he, his camp or, or the union or someone like that would file some sort of grievance or really push the Jays to put him on the IL because he's not accumulating service time right now and he's not accumulating uh, or he's not being paid a major league salary right now. He's not on the IL, which when it comes to this kind of thing means you're probably healthy enough to pitch through it. So acknowledging that, you know, I don't know how Alec Manoa feels right now physically, but the fact that he's had about a month of, of these tests and, and follow-up appointments and second and third opinions, and there's still not enough to even put him on the IL. How do you think that that is being received from 
the Blue Jays. And I don't mean the front office because that's a whole separate thing that might have a long-term impact. But I mean, if you're one of those guys that has dealt with being a part of the four-man rotation or has pitched extra innings out of the bullpen or, you know, has been up and down to AAA and asked to be stay ready at times, Alec Manoa is a part of this team and has basically, by, by doing this, the way it seems to me, has taken himself out of the mix to potentially help the Blue Jays in a playoff race where every little bit of help could count. Like, we don't know that guys are going to make it all the way healthy. We don't know that there won't be, uh, you know, a doubleheader day. We don't know that game 162 won't be a meaningless one where they could just use someone to sop up some innings. How has this been received from how you can tell in the clubhouse with Manoa, you know, more or less taking himself out of the mix to help this team down the stretch? Yeah, this is an one of the really interesting layers to it, right? And the players, uh, you know, as far as the the whole conversation around Manoa from the moment he was optioned until now, I mean, their focus has been on the game in front of them and on and on their own job, which is pretty significant. Um, my understanding, though, is that this has been obviously noticed by the players in that room. They are well aware of the fact that Alec Manoa has been optioned to AAA. They're well aware of the fact that he has not pitched to AAA. They know he opened the season for them. He was a Cy Young finalist last year. So even if players aren't talking about it publicly, they are well aware of this. They're talking about it behind the scenes with each other, um, with their agents. Um, these are conversations that occur around all major league clubhouses, including with the Toronto Blue Jays. Now, I'm not saying it's like some huge distraction. They also talk about their fantasy football teams. They also talk about their batting stances and all kinds of other things. And this is one thing among many. I'm not saying that this is like front of mind for everyone. But yeah, I I don't think this is going to improve Manoa's standing within that room. And in fact, I think that there's going to be at a certain point next spring, assuming he is back with the Blue Jays, which is you know, uh, you know, well, that's the working assumption at this point. Um, assuming he's back with the Blue Jays, there will probably be some fences to mend, I would think. Because as you said, there are players in this team who have absolutely put it all on the line. And the four-man rotation is a perfect example of that. The rotation has held this team together all season long without a lot of contributions from Alec Manoa. So as I said, the players are well aware of this. Um, and... Uh, they're not, I haven't heard anyone really address it publicly, um, but that doesn't mean that they aren't well aware of exactly what's transpired. And I'm sure some of them have their thoughts about it. Yeah, it's probably not the the coolest thing you can do as a teammate. And again, there's the element of he feels how he feels. So let's take the individual centric look at this now and think about, okay, he's shut down. The team is going to acquiesce and, and let him focus on getting back to where he needs to be physically and health wise. Uh, I would imagine a, there is an awful lot of pressure on showing up to spring training day one, 2024 being ready to go and looking pretty, pretty damn good. If you've kind of shut yourself down here. Um, but if you're the blue Jays, when it comes to Alec Manoa's 2024 role, how are you been penciling him in? This is a team that has Hyunjin Ryu, who is going to be a free agent. The other four starters all under contract, but it's also an organization that doesn't have a lot of major league ready starting pitching depth. Bowden Francis could maybe shift back to a starter role. He's been valuable in the valuable in the bullpen. We, we can see there um, at the AAA level, you know, Mitch White's been a tiny bit 
better lately, but Ricky Tiedemann has not pitched a lot of innings. Most of their interesting starting pitching prospects are at double A and below. Can this team go into the offseason thinking Manoa is going to be a part of their five-man rotation? Or has this situation gotten too muddy where you kind of have to take an even longer look at depth than we would have anticipated? Well, I think there are a couple layers to this. One is the performance side and then two is the relationship side and unfortunately for the Blue Jays and Manoa neither one of those is in a great spot if you look at the performance there's there are legitimate reasons that he was optioned to the minor leagues his performance was not good this year and if you look at the underlying metrics if you look at the ERA I mean I don't have to tell you Blake I mean I don't have to tell anyone listening we all saw it we all know he did not perform well this year so that's not going to inspire a ton of confidence when it comes to what he might be able to do in 2024. So even if we only look at performance, he is the kind of starter that you would say on a good team, he should be competing for a spot in the major league rotation. And if he doesn't make the major league rotation, he goes to AAA, he's depth, he comes up at some point. So that is from a pure performance lens, how I would look at it. Now there is the relationship side too. So Pete Walker, Right, We all saw the clip. John Schneider, Pete Walker, Alec Manoa, spring training 2023. They are telling him that he has made the team and it is this really great moment. It's on social media. Everyone's excited about it. Now, I, I've i asked Pete Walker about it. I haven't had a conversation. He, he declined to speak to me about it, which is totally fine. Um, but, you know, I don't think that Pete Walker is thrilled with the developments here, okay? Like, I'm going to go on a limb there. Um, I don't think that the coaching staff as a whole is thrilled, like I said, with the clubhouse. And in fact, like, they're not thrilled. I think we can say that pretty pretty definitively. And so what does that mean? How does that get repaired? And this is where, like, for as much as we love the stats and the numbers and the, you know, seam-shifted wake and everything like that, (laughs) What does it look like for this relationship to get repaired? And that is a question. There have been a ton of conversations that like this hasn't been a month of silence, right? In in this whole process, there have been a ton of conversations between the player and the team and who knows where this goes, right? Like there's, there's still more conversations to go and there are a lot of reasons for everyone involved to get on the same page and somehow to get aligned and to make sure that they're pushing in the same direction again. But I don't, I think that that will require some work and some finesse and some real relationship skills from one direction or another. And I don't know what form that takes. It's a, it's a tough one to figure. So Ben, something you mentioned a little earlier is sometimes we hear stuff like this and it takes us a little bit to put enough reporting together where it's solid enough to, to go with it. And then someone in our role also has to, especially on the writing side, where you have a little bit more time to build it out, we have to be cognizant of, well, one side is going to have incentive to tell a story one way. The other side is going to have incentive to tell a story another way. And look, I'm I'm more than happy when the situation calls for it, the starting pitching depth entering the season, the lack of acquiring an extra bat at the trade deadline, some of the, you know, lineup or pitching change decisions, stuff like that. I am, it's like a huge chunk of this job is nitpicking what a a GM or a manager or front office do. But in this case, I'm a little at a loss for what the Blue Jays could have done better with this Manoa situation where they let him go down to the complex league and work his way back up. And it was pretty quick enough that, you know, he hadn't 
there was a small window there where if he had been good the rest of the way, he might have even still kept Super 2 eligibility. It wasn't entirely likely, but there was a small possibility there. They give him another crack at the rotation. He doesn't succeed. They try to send him down. I don't. Obviously, we're not behind the closed doors, but from what we can see, was there a way that they could have handled Manoa from a performance and, and what to do with that performance perspective better. L- let's leave aside the PR and optics handling of it because that's a, a separate thing, but how they've actually handled Manoa. Do you, like, where do you land on that one? Because I'm, I'm happy to to nitpick where it's there, but I don't know what you could have done differently when the guy just hasn't performed and you're trying to make the postseason. Yeah. And I think, you know, ultimately the player is going to be the driving force in their career more so than the support staff, more so than the team, more so than an agent or a teammate or anyone around them. Um, it's going to be player driven. So, yeah, I think could the Blue Jays have done something better? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they could have. Um, I think this this is not a good result. Like whatever whatever you think about how it unfolded. You don't want to have your opening day starter not pitch after August the 10th or August the 11th. Not a good result. So I'm sure there are things they could have done better. I'm not sure exactly what those things are. So I'm not going to sit here you know, behind the microphone and say I know exactly what those things are. Um, I think it would, be, it would be pretty close-minded to say that they couldn't have done anything better um, because you, know, you always want to get the most out of your players and that's clearly not happening right here. But I do think ultimately when it comes to a player... Um, I, I think Alec Manoa, yeah, he might say he, and I don't know this um, for a fact, but he might say that he wished the Blue Jays would have handled things differently. But ultimately, it's on Manoa to be the driving force behind his own career. And so the results, those are, he's the one who's throwing those pitches. He's the one who is making some of these decisions. And there are definitely physical issues that are involved here. Um, not injuries, like I said, but they're physical issues. But at the same time, one way or another, a player is responsible for the numbers and for the production that they end up with. So um, I think that anyone in this situation, and, and certainly Alec Manoa, there has to be accountability here. And maybe there hasn't been enough of that in the eyes of some. In fact, you know, I've heard from people on the Jays side that think there's not enough accountability from Alec Manoa in this situation. And so we'll see where that goes. But there is, you know, there's room for repair here. Um, but that'll require some real skill because I don't think it's automatic as to what that looks like. It's a it's a tough one. Uh, so, Ben, if we recontextualize what Manoa's season has meant, look, compared to last year, that is a 4.5 swing in wins above replacement. Now, this isn't the, you know, this isn't how the the wins and losses actually work, but let's play out the, the example here. That's a 4.5 swing in wins. Vladimir Guerrero's drop-off has been about a a two-win drop-off as well. So we're talking six and a half wins. If the Jays were six and a half games better in the standings, it would be weird because it would mean they won half a game. Uh, They would also still be in basically the same spot. They'd be in wild card two, but they would be competing with the Rays and the Orioles still for the division. When you look at the entire season, look, they've had great health until very, very recently. Every member of the starting rotation except for Manoa has been as good as they could have hoped or better. They have a top five bullpen in baseball last night's blips uh, aside. When you look at where they're at and and how we're talking about this team and their inability to, you know, sustain a a big run or, or really look like one of the best teams in baseball for any stretch of time. Is it as simple as, hey, you got six and a half fewer wins from your best young pitcher and your best young hitter? Yeah, I think that's a pretty fair way to look at it. Um, 
you know, I think that to me, I look at a collective lack of power um, as the big difference on this team, especially just considering how good their pitching staff is, as you've said. Um, so, I, you know, we've seen flashes from George Springer and, and from Vlad Jr. in the last few days that are encouraging, but I still look at a team where the team leader has 21 homers and probably is trending toward 23, 24 on the season. That's pretty, that's pretty low. Like that's really low. They're 18th in total team. home runs. Yeah. I mean, that's, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's even more striking when you just look at the, like, who's your big threat? Who's the threat that's going to, that's going to really strike fear into opposing managers and relievers and starters. And I, I don't see that on this team. So um, I, I think that Manoa, I think they've actually bounced back from that pretty well because they've had probably more than you would have expected from Ryu. I think Vlad Jr. has had a better season than War would suggest. I mean, I think he's actually like chronically undersold by War because he posts so much. And I think I think the defensive metrics are way too hard on him, um, mm-hmm. to be honest. But um, but uh, yeah, I think that it's a fair read at the same time to say that both Vlad Jr. and Alec Manoa fell well short of probably where we would have expected them. There's no question about that. Yeah, I think uh, I think you and I disagree on the the Vlad season there a little bit maybe, and then that's probably a conversation for end of season when we're you know doing the either the postmortem or the celebration. Either way, I, maybe we won't nitpick with Vlad if they win the World Series because I'd imagine that would mean he he turned a corner <laughs> at some point. Uh, but yeah, that's a convo for uh, another day. But I think you're right that the lack of power there is pretty noticeable. And you play a Rangers team yesterday that yeah they only did it with two home runs, but you've got pitchers having to nibble a little bit because Semyon and Seager and Lowe are such big home run threats. I mean, Mitch Garver's turned into a home run threat now lately. And then it's like, oh yeah, you get to the bottom third of the order and there's Jonah Heim who, uh, who is also pretty good uh, with the long ball as far as catchers go. So that game yesterday, Ben, there's a lot we can, we can do with it. We've used most of our time on the Manoa thing here, which I I think is fair, um, but wanted your take on the decision to let Chris Bassett go back out uh, given the way things had gone for him in the the couple of innings prior. And this is, again, a nitpicky thing where if Bassett executes better or Yenesis Cabrera is a little bit better or the bats come around, maybe it's not that big a deal. Um, but to me, and I know this is something you and I have talked about when we're at games together before, it's the, the I, I can't, I can't predict game to game if a pitcher is going to be allowed to go back out for say the sixth inning. And I think when we look at things, Hey, how have the first five innings gone? Where are you in the lineup? What does that part of the lineup look like? How many pitches have you thrown? Is there hard contact? Things like that. We should be able to predict pretty well. If a guy's going back out there, what did you think of Bassett being left out there, especially coming on the heels of in a very similar situation and a situation where I'd argue Kikuchi had an even better case to go back out. He did not go back out in a game last week and that one kind of back fired as well yeah it's an interesting call i i'm fine with it um it obviously backfired and if you could go back in time you you undo that of course um i'm okay with it just given that it was middle to back of the order um you know you're facing garver grossman and leody Tavares. presumably you're going to trust chris bassett against those guys certainly if you're going to make a run to the ALCS or the World Series, Chris Bassett's going to have to get out hitters who are better than Robbie Grossman and Leody Tavares. <laughs> and, you know, it just didn't happen this time. So I'm okay with it. Um, I think progressively, as we get closer to the end of the season, um, and or anytime you're approaching an off day, for example, 
um, which the Blue Jays don't have until Monday. It, you know, like on Saturday and Sunday, you got to be more aggressive with your bullpen, knowing that you have that off day coming up. And on a day like this, where you're in the middle of you know ten games in ten days, maybe you have to lean on your starter just a little bit more. As much as these games are huge, um, you're also balancing the long term and the short term. So. I get it. When I was watching it unfold in real time, I wasn't questioning it. So I'm not inclined to say that that was a huge error um, by the Blue Jays. I think if you're looking at errors, Chris Bassett made one running over to third base. Or yeah. Rivera made one waving home Kevin Kiermeyer. Like there were definitely mistakes made in the game by the Blue Jays, but I'm okay with that call. Okay. I just wanted your take on it. And, and you know, I, I go back and forth on it a, a little bit as well. I tend to be more of a let your guys go out and pitch through it um, kind of guy in general, despite what the, the numbers might say. Um, but yeah, the it, just coming on the heels of when they made the opposite decision in a similar spot. Um, consistency is what I'm looking for uh, there a little bit. But like you said, there there was a reasonable case to be made. A couple quick ones for you, Ben, before we let you go. Uh, ben, Brandon Belt comes out of that game last night with back spasms. He had missed a handful of games with a back issue, a handful of games with an illness, a handful of games with a back issue. Um, I believe he would have been basically done an IL stint almost like as of today, if they had just sat him down, uh, do you think that that's, I, I know we're expecting to get an update pregame today, but given how that's all gone and that it's a back for a guy in his mid to late thirties, um, do you, do you, is it kind of on your radar that he might need an IL stint here? Yeah, I think it's on the radar because um, it could allow you to bring somebody else up. I mean, maybe it's uh, as simple as a Mason McCoy, you know, who knows uh, what that corresponding move would be, but if Belt isn't going to be able to go in the next few days, then I think there is a pretty strong case just to IL him. And then ideally, he's able to recover fully and then he's back for the wild card round. He's back for the final weekend of the series um, and you can use him in those situations. But, you know, in the meantime, they're probably going to have to rely and continue relying on a guy like Spencer Horwitz who came in and got a big pinch hit. <laughs> just yesterday, or Kevin Biggio will keep playing a lot. And I thought Kevin Biggio quietly probably had his best game of the season. Um, I know he had a walk-off home run, so we'll say it's in, <laughs> among his best games He also had a game-winning hit-by-pitch. So yeah, true. He's, he's had, had some big ones. Yeah, he's had some clutch moments. But, but I, I do, I did want to talk about Kevin Biggio uh, front, pivoting from the belt thing because, look, if belt, let's say belt doesn't need the the IL, it's just something that he'll he'll feel better about today. Matt Chapman could be back this weekend. You look at this team, and if you draw the cutoff around the the All Star break. And yeah, arbitrary endpoints, but that's a good little like almost two month stretch of play here. And you filter this team by who's been getting on base the most, who's been doing the most damage at the plate. It is the guys who two months ago we would have thought were the obvious guys getting squeezed for playing time here. Kevin Biggio has the fourth best on base percentage in the American League in the second half of the season among qualified hitters. Like that's that's the level Kevin Biggio has been on. And I know there's not, it hasn't been crazy uh, amounts of power and the OPS isn't like a thousand or anything like that, but he has been pretty steady and he's filled in at a couple spots. Davis Schneider would be first in OBP in the second half of the season if he had enough plate appearances to qualify. They're going to get Matt Chapman back at some point. Brandon Belt is around here. Man, how... How tough is the job John Schneider has here to manage this as a meritocracy because every game matters so much while also, hey, 
Whit Merrifield and Matt Chapman, who maybe haven't made the best cases for everyday plate appearances, are also your kind of vets and leader guys. How do you manage that this next little bit? Or does everyone have to kind of put ego aside and the hot guys are going to play? I think you just go with the best options on any given day. And we saw Whit Merrifield not in the starting lineup yesterday. I think that's fine. I think when Matt Chapman comes back and... You know, he's he's recovered from his finger to the point that he can play. Great, but you're still going to want some rest days, I think, for Matt Chapman. Um, so he can play, uh, he can be on the bench here and there. Um, I think Bo Bichette uh, is going to DH occasionally. We're going to see Vlad Jr. in there every single day. Um, we're going to see, I mean, David Schneider is going to be in there most days. But I think you can mix and match. I really think it's fine. And with a guy like Biggio or Santiago Espinal, They've really used them in such a way that they kind of split up games. And Espinal faces a lot of the lefties. Biggio faces a lot of the righties. It's worked out pretty nicely for them in that way. So I don't really see a crunch coming necessarily, especially because with Jansen Hurt, you're not using the DH spot for Kirk ever. And then if Belt is also sidelined, the DH spot is going to be open basically every single day, allowing you to use different guys in that role. Okay, so one other thing that probably cost them yesterday, and we're going to go wrestling heel here, is uh, the crowd, the city of Toronto, the Toronto Blue Jays fan base. Smallest crowd of the year for that game. Uh, what do you make? I know kids are back in school and stuff, and it's a it's a weeknight. That that was very surprising to me that for a game this big, uh, and I'm I'm being facetious, of course, that the crowd is is why they lost. But did that catch you off guard looking around there, and it's a half full stadium? Yeah, it was weird. Like, and I'm not like trying to tell everyone, I'm not saying that people shouldn't, you know, watch at home if they'd rather just watch on TV. That's everyone's decision to make, right? Hey, those it's, ratings um, help too, right? Yeah, exactly. Or listen to uh, to Madison and, and Wagner on the radio tonight. But um, but you know what? Like, it's it's weird. That's the only. It's just weird. Like I the small. Like I would have believed. Hey, thirty thousand. Okay, sure. But. Um, it's the smallest, like the single smallest crowd of the season. And, you know, in, in April, like I'm sure they had games against the Rays with the dome closed on a Tuesday. And it's like, what? This is the biggest season, <laughs> biggest series of the season. It's the smallest crowd. It's just bizarre. It's really, I, I don't know what to make of it. It's it's weird. I don't know what to uh, what to make of it really e- either. It's uh, I, I'm sure it's not going to be the case all series. It, it's just uh, one of those random things, I guess. And you're right. Yeah, there have been some... I mean, there have been some just not particularly exciting games uh, on paper even earlier in the season. So so maybe that turns around as the series goes. Ben, when it comes to the rest of the series, uh, if Texas wins one more game this series, even though the Jays could split, that would give Texas the tiebreaker in a scenario where the Blue Jays and, and Rangers end the season tied in the standings. Um, just how big is it? for you for this team to sweep the rest of the series as difficult as that sounds to take three in a row off a team like Texas. Yeah, that's a really big variable in this. And, you know, obviously if if I can allow myself to descend into baseball cliche for a minute here, like Hmm. you can't sweep the series tonight. So you just got to win the game tonight and then go from there. But at this point, it's likely Texas will win one of those three games, right? They're a good team. So they're probably going to win one of the next three. And then that means that the Blue Jays will have to beat the Rangers outright. And man, you know, you look at Seattle and 
Texas and Toronto, they're all so close together. It's going to come down to the last 16, 17 games of the season, 10% of the year. It's just going to be a sprint. And the Blue Jays don't have easy competition anymore. They are really going to have to earn it. And that was always going to be the case. But it's never been more apparent that the Blue Jays are going to have to earn their way in. And let's not, I mean, if they don't make it, then we'll have lots to talk about at that point. So I don't necessarily want to go there right Hmm. now. Um, But they need to make it in. This is a team that's got the talent, has the resources, they need to make it in. So it's going to be a lot of pressure on them, and we'll see how they respond to that challenge. And for anyone who isn't aware, uh, if it ends up being Houston they're jockeying with, they do have the tiebreaker over Houston. They have uh, a split with Seattle, so we'd go to secondary tiebreakers that I haven't uh, quite looked at. Last one, Ben. Uh, did you... I, I don't know if you would have got home from the ballpark enough. Maybe you were just looking on game day, but the sheer amount of ex-Blue Jay versus ex-Blue Jay in that Angels-Mariners game last night that went 11 innings and went Toronto's way because Seattle lost. Uh, did you have an eye on that at all? I did see Aaron Loop getting some big outs. I mean, uh, gotta love uh, Aaron Loop in there for the Angels. Um, Loop, Trent helping. Thornton <laughs> against uh, Trent Thornton against Randall Grichuk at one point. Yeah, this this is how it goes down. This is the thing, though. Like when you leave it when you leave it this late and you leave it to chance, then your whole season can come down to whether. Randall Gritchuk gets a base hit off of Trent Thornton. Like that is, that's, you don't want, if you're the Toronto Blue Jays, you can't let your season be decided by players and other teams. Like take it into your own hands. And I know it's easier said than done, but man, like you don't want to be sitting there on the final game of the season, the way they did in 2021, hoping that a score goes your way. Come on. Like this is, and I know it's not, I know it's not that easy, but man, this is a team with a lot of talent they need to be taking this into their own hands and forcing other teams to chase them, not sitting there hoping that Aaron Loop can be their de facto closer on the West Coast. <laughs> yeah, and look, you, you you said that it's easier said than done, but here's the reality of it. The Toronto Blue Jays are in a playoff spot today, so you control your own destiny. If you won out, there's no possible way for you to fall out of the playoffs, and that is yeah. you know, as much of control of your own fate as you can hope to have at this time of year. Uh, ben Nicholson-Smith, thanks for taking the time out this morning, buddy. I appreciate it. Yep, you got it. Thanks, Blake. Ben Nicholson-Smith of Sportsnet, of Sportsnet.ca. If you want a little more on that Manoa situation, check out his terrific piece uh, from yesterday, kind of leading the the news cycle on all of this Manoa stuff. It's uh, it's messy, and it's going to be uh, a bit of a path back to cleanliness. Uh, tonight, it won't be Alec Manoa on the mound. It'll be the guy who took that fifth starting rotation spot when he got back healthy, coming back from a second Tommy John surgery. Hyunjin Ryu has been terrific for the Toronto Blue Jays. He will go head-to-head with Max Scherzer. We're going to take a break and talk to Levi Weaver of The Athletic, formerly covered the Rangers, now does the wind-up daily newsletter there, uh, still has a good finger on the pulse of this Rangers team. We'll set up the rest of the series with Levi Weaver as Jays Talk Plus continues on Sportsnet 360 and the Sportsnet Radio Network. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy, our next guest, working a little Shania Twain reference into one of his recent newsletters over The Athletic. He is the co-author of The Wind-Up every morning in your inbox and at The Athletic. It's Levi Weaver. How are you, man? 
I'm doing good. I was like, why am I getting Shania Twain? What did I do? Oh, right. I did this to myself. You did it. I was the one that put Shania Twain in. I was the one that, no, she's great. So I will take Shania Twain in. It took me a second to remember I had done that. (laughs) All right. right. Uh, So, Levi, we're going to talk a lot of pitching here, but I got to ask, man, I know you play some ball. I know you made your pitching debut yourself over the weekend. How'd it go? (laughs) Um. So I, I uh, for for the listeners, I, I play in like a sandlot league. Uh, it is it has been so much fun, but I have a whole lot of pitchers on the team. So I was like, you know, I can throw a baseball relatively straight. I'll try it. Um, came in with the bases one out, uh, got out of the inning without giving up a run, and then proceeded to give up the maximum of five runs over each of the next two innings. <laughs> so pitching is uh, <laughs> is not maybe not my forte. Uh, the highs, the highs and the lows, Levi, uh, the no inherited runners and then a bunch of your own scoring. That's a tough one. Uh, hey, that's a, a stat line that would fit right in with this Texas Rangers bullpen. I, I know that you have moved off covering the Rangers day to day to do the wind up uh, national newsletter every day. doesn't seem like you can get away from this team, though. They have been wind up worthy uh, a couple of times now. They've won three in a row here. They beat the brakes off the Toronto Blue Jays yesterday. In general, though, uh, how have you felt uh, about this skid, and where are you in terms of confidence that they can find their footing here and turn things around? Boy, you know, I when they lost that first game against Oakland, I, I was like, that's it. They're cooked. <laughs> um, you know, it's I, I held out my, my optimism for a while, but, man, that was a bad run. I think it was 4-15 and 15 over 19 games. They went from being up. I mean, at some point, they were up like seven and a half games on the Mariners. I think they were up six and a half on Toronto at some point, uh, up three and a half on Houston, and all of those teams caught. And Houston hasn't been exactly hot lately, but they're still, you know, they're still doing it. They're still in first place. Um, I thought they were toast. And then two games against the A's, you go, okay, well, you should expect that they're going to win two out of three against Oakland, especially at home. Uh, I say I did not see coming last night against Toronto. I, those two teams seem to be trending in two completely different directions. Toronto was, I think, what, eight and two in their last 10 before uh, taking on the Rangers. Uh, had just, <laughs> just defeated a former Texas Ranger in Cole Reagans, who was just like this served it up um, with those three wild pitches in a row. It seemed destined that the Blue Jays were going to sweep the Rangers and that was going to be it for Texas. Um, that's that's not how it worked out last night. So I'm, I'll be very interested to watch these next three games. Yeah, as will we. And uh, it'll be a little, we'll be clenched a little tighter these next three, considering uh, there's also the, the season series tiebreaker on the line. The Rangers just need one more win to lock that tiebreaker up. Um, so within this slide, uh, there's been a ton of headlines about the Rangers bullpen. They have, I think they're two for their last 12 converting save opportunities. Uh, if they've won, it's in winning big. So there aren't save opportunities to begin with. Uh, the bullpen's been very bad. But yesterday was also the first time they got a win from a starting pitcher in over three weeks. I know starting pitcher wins are, are nothing anymore, but have you been surprised that, you know, they, they added a couple starting pitchers at the deadline and that was aimed in part to help the bullpen too, because guys would bump from the rotation to the bullpen and be these kind of long guys or bulk guys or swing guys. Um, have you been surprised that the rotation has struggled as well? It's not just a, a bullpen issue. Yeah, I have. And I think, I mean, obviously some of those 
pitcher wins would they would have gotten if the bullpen hadn't blown it. But um, but yeah, it's it's been kind of a whole team effort uh, okay. over the course of the of the slide. They, they the, I think the bigger surprise to me was that the offense was not continuing to, to do as, as well as they had. I think the offense covered up a lot of the bullpen's inadequacies early in the season. And you kind of thought they'd pick up Aroldis Chapman, they pick up Chris Stratton, okay, you know, like they're they're addressing it, but the bullpen's still just been bad. But I but I think the the biggest surprise to me over the course of the slide has been the fact that the offense just kind of stopped covering up all the um all the shortcomings of the bullpen. You know, early in the year they were scoring eight, nine, ten runs and then that that's pretty easy to, to win those games. Um, not not as much lately. So you uh, so in a, in addition to the offense kind of drifting off, and look, Seager and Semyon haven't really been a part of that. They've continued right. hitting pretty well throughout, but they have been down Josh Young, who is maybe going to be back this weekend. They just lost Adolis Garcia. Um, but look, they got a, a little bit of a, a bump this week from Evan Carter, who I know you've been writing about for uh, a little while here. He had a nice outfield assist yesterday in addition to his first career home run. Uh, what do you like uh, about Evan Carter as a prospect? This is obviously a little quicker than maybe the Rangers expected to see him at this level. Yeah, I think they probably would have preferred not to have to have him just yet, but I, it's exciting to, to see uh, the kid hit the big leagues. I think, you know, debuts are always, always fun. One of the things that has always struck me about um, Evan Carter is his patience at the plate. Uh, I think he's, uh, his teammates started calling him full count Carter in the minor <laughs> leagues, apparently, uh, because it seemed like he just always had a full count. And we saw that even in his debut, he came up and he got his first hit. And then in the next two at-bats, he, he, struck out looking both pitches were absolutely painted on the corners they were they were both really good takes and for a kid that's you know 21 years old to be up here just like showing that level of of plate discipline it's pretty impressive um he does have you know all the other tools of speed you saw the outfield assist but but i think that's going to be the thing that serves him especially well as end of the strike zone so this is a, a wild card race that includes Toronto and Texas, obviously, this series is massive. Ryu against Scherzer tonight at the Rogers Center is massive. Uh, Seattle's only a, a half game back of Texas. Houston is within reach uh, for both Texas and Seattle. It's kind of this four-team race with the Jays mixed in there for uh, the AL West and two wildcard spots. Zooming out from the Rangers a little bit, um, you know, Seattle's obviously had the, the best second half. Houston's kind of been Houston the whole way through. And yeah, the Jays are just kind of uh, kind of there, even though they're in the the WC two spot right now. Uh, what do you make of that entire race as a whole? Do you do you have a lean on who the you know let alone who's going to make the playoffs, but who the best of these teams actually is? Yeah, man, it's fun, isn't it? Like yeah. having four teams, and it's you know it's as far widespread as Seattle, Toronto, and these two Texas teams. Um, I think until Houston doesn't do it, you got to expect that they're going to be the team to do it. You know, and they've been so good these last few years and, and they certainly have not been as dominant this year as they have been in previous years. It's just kind of a team that knows how to win, knows how to win. And so I, I, I think they're going to be safe. Um, then it comes down to Texas, uh, Seattle and Toronto and two of those three make it in. Oh, I mean, I think coming into the season, I would have said of those three, the Texas would be the odd man out. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But, I, you know, the first half of the season, they played so well. I think they probably played above their head a little bit. Um, they've added some talent. Seattle weirdly traded away their closer, but they've been so hot this, this past uh, couple of weeks. I don't know if I could tell you which one of those three is going to be the, the odd team out. Um, you know, I mean, the Blue Jays, their rotation has been very solid. I think their offense has probably underperformed a little bit. So if they don't make it, that, that would probably be my my guess for the reason why. But, man, no, I couldn't I couldn't give you a prediction or a guess at this point. Those three look to be pretty neck and neck. Yeah, which is going to be fun, but it's going to be uh, anxiety-inducing. And Texas and Seattle still have, I think, seven games left against each other. So Texas may be mm. in the spot where they're uh, as much in control of their own fate as uh, more so than the other teams because – you know, they're playing the teams that they're chasing uh, the most often. I, I know uh, one of your colleagues, Chandler Rome, wrote about this recently, and you linked to it in the windup. When it comes to the Astros, do you have, do, do we collectively have an understanding of why they're so bad at home and, and they've been tremendous on the road? Yeah. Um, I mean, this, the, the, what's the word I'm looking for? The, the hypothesis that Chandler had was that it had something to do with with the batter's eye, right? Um, mm. But I, but I, I, I don't know. Baseball has these weird things every year, doesn't it? You'll get yeah. like that, you know, his splits are all of a sudden reversed, and it's just like, yep, baseball decided it, it wanted to wear that outfit today. Uh, it usually wears a t-shirt and a blue jeans, and uh, you know, now <laughs> it just decided it wanted to wear its tuxedo just for one season, and then it's going to go back to its golf mode next year. Uh, I really don't know, and things like that are always so weird. There was um, something in, in uh, San Diego, I think Dennis Lynn wrote about earlier this year, where, where the offenses were struggling, and it had to do with possibly the the um, I think it was something to do with the outfield. Well, it's been a couple of months now. My my memory is slipping. All these stories I'm reading through every day, um, but yeah, that's it's a weird one, and kind of one of those. You know, if Houston ends up with home field advantage, will it actually be home field advantage in the playoffs? Yeah, it's an interesting one. And then there's also the component of, well, hey, everyone's got to fight for the wild card and you have to just get in and it's too close to be, you know, picky about your seed. But the third wild card spot is going to be way more preferable than the second wild card spot, probably because you get Minnesota instead of uh instead of either Tampa or, or Baltimore, whichever team doesn't win the AL East there. Uh, Levi, I want to pivot off of the uh, wildcard race and, and ask you about something you wrote about earlier this, or I guess late last week uh, in the windup, and, and that's that robo-umps could be coming. AAA continues to, to tweak the rules. We've talked to people on this show about what that looks like, and, you know, hey, it's nice that we're going to have some, some data to compare and things like that. Given what you've read, what you've seen in the numbers, what you've talked to people about, um, let's say Major League Baseball decides this offseason, hey, we're not going to go to the automated system, but we're going to implement the challenge system uh, to some degree. Is that something you'd be in favor of, or is that too, you know, kind of... It just not yet for you. Yeah, I I kind of like the challenge system, um, especially if it's immediate, right? I think one of the things that people didn't like about the the, the replay system that we have, which I'm I'm very grateful for. I I still remember, you know, the the blown perfect game that they like. Everyone turned around and went, "Well, we can't fix it now," <laughs> and we know we all we all know that it was the wrong call. We all know that was a perfect game. And there's nothing any of us can do about it to make it right. 
And he just sort of looked around and go, we live in a society. We should be able to make it, <laughs> we should be able to make it right. We all know what's wrong. Let's fix it. Uh, I'm thankful for replay. But one of the things that it, I think a lot of people didn't like is the fact that it can take a little while. So, you know, they started to put the time limits on it. I think uh, with the balls and strikes, there have been enough um, advancements in technology. And, you know, of course, reading about the changes that they're making to the to the ABS system, they're trying to make it more uh, personalized for each hitter where not all five foot nine guys are the same exact strike zone, right? Some guy crouches a little more. Some guy stands up a little taller. Um, if I am sitting on my couch watching this in real time and I can see that a pitch was outside the strike zone, like that was clearly a blown call from my couch, you know, 30 miles away from the stadium or mm-hmm. 500 miles away from the stadium. But the umpire right there, whose job it is to make the call, misses it. But his call counts and mine doesn't. You know, it's it's one of those, you know, we, we should be able to fix that. So if they can do it quickly and if they can do it where it doesn't take a, you know, two-minute delay just to review a ball or a strike, but that's something very quick where, you know, hey, you know, send the signal delay, the umpire goes, okay, and New York goes, yeah, you blew it. You know, 15, 20 seconds tops, okay, then I can see that. And that's and I think that's good, and I think for some of the most egregious calls, yeah, I would love to see that uh, be a, an, an option. Um, I think one of the things that I had always said is that, you know, you've got the, you put an earpiece in the umpire's ear, and nobody really even has to know that he's getting the the ball and strike calls from the ABS. He could just make these calls and no one would be the wiser. It would look exactly the same to the people in the stands. Um, I, I think that that's advancement is advancement and there's always going to be growing pains. And, and some of the hitters have said that it's, you know, frustrating to them. Some of the pitches have said it's frustrating to them. So there'll be growing pains, but I, I think the ability to fix some of the worst of the calls, um, you know, we don't need to, we don't need to, I think, argue back and forth over the ones that are an inch outside or, you know, very much right there on the corner. But if you can fix a a pretty egregiously blown call, then yeah, I think it's, I think it's great that we can do that. Yeah. I think that's the, you know, Hey, hey, if a catcher stole one, you know, half a ball with whatever you, you tip your hat to them, but the, the real bad ones, the Ben Revere 2016 playoff ones, uh, you'd like to be able to fix Uh, Levi Weaver, author of the windup newsletter at the athletic. What a couple of weeks ahead for that newsletter to be collecting the best of round baseball every single morning. Uh, Thanks so much for taking the time out, man. Yeah, of course. Anytime. Levi Weaver of The Athletic, formerly Rangers beat writer, still very tied into that team. Uh, Of course, no one seems to be able to figure them out. Nobody seems to be able to figure the Jays out. Uh, It's uh, quite the series we've got here. It's going to be Hyunjin Ryu against Max Scherzer tonight down at Rogers Center, 7 p.m. To reset kind of the stakes of this one, not only is Texas just a half game back of the Toronto Blue Jays now, if Texas wins one more in this series, they will own the season tiebreaker against the Blue Jays. So if you're looking ahead to scenarios where the Jays do just enough to tie for the final spot, well, Texas would get in ahead of them. Um, There are some complicated secondary tiebreakers and and you have to, you know, the Jays have 15 in division games left still. So um, what those secondary and tertiary tiebreakers look like could be uh, pretty different at the end of the season than they look right now. But the way it stands right now, the Jays are mostly in control of their own fate because they are in a spot and they're playing three more against Texas. Gotta have it today. Hyunjin Ryu against Max Scherzer. Now, Scherzer last time out 
got shelled by Houston as part of that awful record-setting series uh, between those two teams. But the six starts he'd made for the Rangers prior to that, he averaged over six innings a start. He posted a 221 ERA. He had a, a strike of the walk ratio up around four to one. So don't sleep on this being a very good version of Max Scherzer still, even if the fastball is now, you know, 94, 95, instead of a little higher where it was before. Righties are going to see the fastball slider change up with a little bit of curve mixed in. Lefties will see fastball cutter change up curveball. He'll ditch the sliders righty versus lefties. And of course, you know what Yanjin Ryu throws? It's the kitchen sink. Uh, add the sinker into that mix. Now the curveball, the changeup have of course been tremendous pitches, uh, the curveball, especially getting lefties out so far. So this is a really fun pitching matchup. It's a fun pitching matchup because they've kind of orbited each other for years because it's two guys who are up there on the age scale still hanging around and doing, you know, different versions of themselves, but still finding ways to be pretty effective. Uh, the Jays need to have it. There's no way around that, really. Blair and Barco will be with you five to seven to continue to set that game up. They'll also be with you for Jays talk post game. Uh, thanks to Levi Weaver for coming on, to Ben Nicholson-Smith, to Jay Jaffe, to Madison Shipman. Thanks to Jeff Azaparty, Lance Kennedy, and Jennifer Rolnick behind the glass. Uh, Show Ali and Sam McKee, are coming up for you. I'd imagine they'll be talking a little bit more about that disaster of a Blue Jays game last night as well. Uh, and yeah, a reminder, if you missed it earlier, the promo code for or the uh, the contest code for today to text the 590-590 for a pair of tickets and some swag for tomorrow's game was Clement. Uh, sorry to Ernie Clement about how your bills went out last night. Sorry to any Bills fan listening. Uh, my Jaguars are 1-0, so I, I, can't, I can't relate to that. Uh, we'll talk to you tomorrow. Uh, Jays Rangers tonight.